You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Well, peace be with you, Sojourn East. It's so good to see you guys. I mean it. This has become, it's only week two, but it's a highlight of my week. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. Before we jump into God's word, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, one, we thank you for the gift to gather. We thank you uh, that you dispersed the clouds and the rain for us. You gave us a wonderful morning to be together. I pray for us as we open your word that the the blinders that so often we're wearing that keep us from seeing clearly, seeing from a perspective of eternity, that they would fall. I pray that your word, as we hear the call that's placed on our life, it it wouldn't discourage us, it would inspire us to give up our our low expectations and to press more fully in to the life that is truly life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Paul had a little background. Paul had planted this church. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He planted the church there. It's a church that he knew, that he loved, and he cared about. And he's writing this letter from a Roman prison. And he doesn't know if he's going to be put to death or he's going to be released. But he does know that this there's the potential that this is the last letter that he ever writes to these people that he dearly loves. And in the section we're looking at today, Paul boils the entire letter down to one verse. It's in verse 27. You can look at it in your Bible or in the apps. Paul says, the reason I'm writing. Just one thing is how it starts in this translation. Just one thing. There's only one thing I ask of you. One thing that really matters to me, whether I live or die. There's one thing I want from you as a people. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is Philippians in one verse. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's our memory verse for this week. I want to encourage you to memorize it. If you've got that, you've got the uh, the key to the entire book of Philippians. And it's important to be clear here. Paul is not saying live worthy enough so that God will accept you and love you. He's saying you already are loved and accepted by God. And so live like that's true. Live a life worthy. Now, what's interesting about this verse, uh, different translations translate it differently. If you have a different translation, I might say, conduct yourselves or let your manner of life. I chose the Christian Standard Bible this week because it communicates, I think, the heart of what Paul's saying when he says, as citizens of heaven. He's saying, conduct yourself as citizens of heaven and live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to understand why Paul said this, because he could have just said, walk as Christians, live as Christians, but he drew some attention to this word that has citizens in it. And he's saying, as citizens, 
Think of yourself as citizens of heaven. To understand why, we've got to know a little history. Philippi was a proud, patriotic city. It was derived its name from Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was the greatest city in all of Macedonia. In 42 AD, it became an official Roman colony, which meant all of the citizens of Philippi became automatically became citizens of Rome. And to be a citizen of Rome in that day was a very big deal. It meant you could vote, you could own property, you didn't have to pay a lot of taxes, you could never be tortured or face the death penalty. And in addition to all of the legal advantages, there were social advantages too. I mean, if you're a citizen of Rome, you know what that meant? It meant you had connections to power and to money. You were a mover and a shaker. And so Philippi became this place where people took a lot of pride in being from Philippi. It ended up being a place where uh, a lot of Roman military veterans went to retire. Like that was their place. It was kind of like the beach here, you know. It was, it was a military community, and it was very proud. It was very patriotic. I like to think of it somewhat like Texas, right? If you know people from Texas, they can be obnoxious. It's cool, but also kind of obnoxious. And if you're from Texas, you know this is true. You've got a lot of pride and a lot of patriotism because you're from Texas. Now, the problem is that pride and that patriotism had started to make its way into the church in Philippi, and we don't know all of the details but we do know, just from looking at the clues in the letter that summoned the church, they were pushing their own agendas. They were coming in, and they were taking people's eyes off of the mission of the church, and they were pushing their own agendas, operating out of what Paul calls selfish ambition. We know that there was a lot of arguing and contentiousness in the church. And even more than that, we know that there were people outside of the church who weren't even believers. They were, they were citizens of Rome and Philippi but they were holding a lot of sway over the people in the church. They were stirring the pot. They were creating division. And so at the time Paul's writing this letter, the church hadn't split, hasn't yet split, but, but Paul sees these hairline fractures starting to appear. And he wants to deal with it and address it head on. And so he writes to these citizens of Philippi, these citizens of Rome, and he says, remember just one thing, as citizens of heaven. This is about allegiance, about where our greatest loyalties lie. And Paul, here in this text, he's speaking to the tension that every Christian feels. It's the tension of holding a dual citizenship. It's like we, we are citizens of Philippi or Louisville or Rome or the United States, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of God. In this heavenly citizenship, it doesn't negate our earthly citizenship, but it does transcend it, supersede it, and also transforms it. And the whole goal in Paul, when he's writing this letter, is he wants, he wants the believers in Philippi to remember that our citizenship in heaven that should shape and shade how we see and understand the world and our work and our politics and all the social issues we're going through and all of our relationships. That should be where our allegiance and our loyalty lie above all else. That's who we are. And when he says, as citizens, he's saying, remember who you are and remember whose you are. 
As I was studying this text this week, I couldn't help but think of our church and the church in America at this moment. Between the pandemic and the violence, the protests, the political mayhem, our country is on edge. Just how the, the stresses and the drama of Philippi crept into the church there, the same thing's happening here. And all around us, there's so much division. And, and it's not just division, there's also people vying for our allegiance. You guys know that? You feel that? Every issue that comes up, which side are you on? Are you for, I mean, think about the economy. Some people are like, open it up, full bore, let whatever happens happen. Others are like, keep it closed completely and let whatever happens, happens. It doesn't seem like there's any middle ground. It seems like you're either way over here, you're way over here, or let's take the issue of masks and no masks. Something I never thought I'd preach on before four months ago. Should we wear a mask or should we not wear a mask? I'm in the wear a mask category. I tend to wear a mask when I go out and I'm around people and I'm in stores. But not too long ago, I was coming home. My wife asked me to pick something up. It was a short stop in a store, but I didn't have my mask on me. And so I was debating, do I go in? Do I not go in? But I went in and I was judging myself as I went in, you know, because I was thinking you should be wearing a mask. And I went in and all of the people with masks on, I felt like they were shooting daggers at me with their eyes as if I was spraying anthrax through the aisles, just walking there for one minute, grabbing my things and leaving. But then I saw a guy who's about my age, looks a lot like me. He wasn't wearing a mask and he was very proud. And he saw me without the mask and he gave me a cool nod. It's like, you're on, we're on the same team, aren't we? And it's, no, we're not, actually. I just, I left my mask at home is the only thing. But it's polarizing. Where does your allegiance lie? Red or blue? Is there room for purple? Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't feel like it. And this, this pledging of allegiance, this vying for our allegiance that we see in our society, it's, it's only going to intensify as the presidential election draws near. As a pastor, this is my least favorite season. I've been through three of them so far as a pastor, and they've gotten progressively worse every single time. They've created more drama and stirred more divisions in the church every single time. I've watched people, because of discussions about the election, throw away relationships that have existed for years like you'd throw away a solo cup because there was one hard conversation or one point of disagreement. When I think about the church, when I think about our church, I have never felt the potential for division as much as I do now. And that's what makes me grateful that we're in this text and we're in this book. Because the way forward for us as God's people is learning to live out of our dual citizenship. And it's one of the hardest tasks of the Christian life, but it's also one of the most crucial tasks. And here in Philippians 1, Paul, he begins to explore what that looks like. How do we live out of this citizenship? How do we live a life that testifies to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to what he's done for us? How do we live a life worthy of what Christ has done for us? And what's interesting here in Philippians 1, Paul says the primary way we live out of our heavenly citizenship, the primary way we live it out is through relationship with one another. 
It's not through personal devotion, although that's certainly part of it. Paul doesn't list that here. He says, do you want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Look at your relationships. Look at the church. He writes in verse 27 and 28, he says, live a life worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Do you hear the corporate nature of that verse? Standing firm together in one spirit, in one accord, contending together. Now, in the chapters that follows, Paul will get into specific behaviors and practices and virtues. But here at the start, as Paul's introducing his his thesis for the letter, he kind of steps back and he gives us this big picture. What does it look like for us as individuals, but even more for us as a people, as God's people? What does it look like for us to live a life worthy of the gospel? And there are three things he says. Number one, standing firm in one spirit. Living a life worthy of the gospel means that we stand firm knowing that in Christ we all share and partake in the same spirit, the spirit of God. The spirit unites us to the Father and the spirit unites us to one another. And Paul is saying, as believers, you know this, so stand firm in it. So I was preparing this week, I looked it up. The majority of Paul's letters, this is, this is one of his favorite exhortations to the church. Stand firm. That's a great exhortation because he doesn't say attack. He doesn't say wage war. He doesn't say go after people. He says, no. But he also doesn't say retreat into cloistered, gated spiritual communities. He says stand firm. Stand firm means be who you are where you are. And as Paul's painting this vision of a church that is living a life worthy of the gospel, he says the first thing is they're standing firm. They're being who they are, where they are. They're not, they're not retreating in fear, and they're also not attacking in anger. They're being who they are, where they are. They're standing together in one spirit. This is crucial for the church's power and its strength and its witness. You know, in Philippi, Before any public events like plays or contests or games, time was set aside to honor the emperor. Just like we set aside time for the national anthem, there was time set aside for the emperor. And at the time Paul's writing, there were two primary titles given to the emperor, who was Nero, by the way, at the time of this writing. And the two titles given to the emperor were Lord and Savior. Now, as Christians, they they could pay taxes to Rome, but they could not. They could not call Nero Lord or Savior because they know there's one Lord and one Savior. And so they wouldn't say it. Think of how much strength that took. I mean, think in our country, the drama and the controversy around NFL players who refused to stand for the national anthem. Think of the rage that emerged in our society. Now crank that to 11 and put Nero with absolute authority over everyone who was a psychopathic murderer. And yet the church resisted. How? 
Where do you find that kind of courage? The Spirit of God? Absolutely. The promises of God? Sure. But it's also the people of God. When you've got an entire group of people saying, no, we're not going to play that game. There's real power in that witness. So Paul says, stand firm together in one spirit. The second thing is he says, stand firm in in one accord. Some translations will say in one mind. But Paul, he's not just talking about doctrine or beliefs. The word he's using here, he's talking about what we value, what we love, what we ultimately care about as God's people. And what he's saying is we should have unity and we should have some uniformity when it comes to our longings and our desires and our loves. This doesn't mean that we need to to love the same restaurants or the same books or watch the same movies. But Paul is saying his vision for this church that's living worthy of the gospel, they do share the same great longings of life. They all, in the end, want the same thing. A while back, I heard a pastor say, I'm tired of being, I'm tired of just being around Christians who believe what I believe. I want to spend more time with Christians who also want what I want. And that resonated deeply with me. It's not just do we believe the right things, but do we share in our desires? Do we all want the same thing? Do we want God? Do we long for his kingdom? Do we want to see others brought into his kingdom? Do we pray and is our greatest desire that his kingdom would come and his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven? Paul's saying the beautiful church, the powerful church, the church that's living a life worthy of the gospel is a church where this desire is central among them. They're standing firm in one accord. This doesn't erase our distinctions and we can have all kinds of secondary convictions but we know they're secondary and we know that they fall before the word of God and the people of God. Standing firm in one spirit, standing firm in one accord. And then lastly, he says, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's saying, when I I, want to hear or when I come and visit, what I want to see is you guys locking arms together to see the gospel go forth into the world. I want to see you living on mission. I want to see lives transformed. I want to work through you, through your prayers, through your relationships, through your preaching, through your conversations. And I want people to be transferred. I want to transfer people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my son because of you. Paul's saying, that's our fight. You want to know what we contend about? We contend for the gospel. That's our mission. And here's what I've seen. When mission gets lost in the life of the church, that's when divisions start popping up like weeds. When we stop fighting alongside one another for the call that God's put before us, we start fighting with one another. And that's how churches who have been ordained by God to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, to herald it to the world, the greatest news that there's ever been. That's how churches who've been entrusted with something like that end up spending their days arguing about pews and chairs and the color of carpet, whether Eddie's guitar solo was too loud or too long, because we lose sight of it. 
we lose sight of the mission. Paul is saying here, the beautiful church, the church that's living a life worthy of the gospel, it's living into the destiny that God has for them. This is Paul's vision, and I wonder if it's our vision. When we come to the church, is this what we long for? When we pray for the church, is this what we pray for? Is this our hope? Do you long for unity like Paul? Do you long to stand firm and stand together? Because if you don't have that desire, it's never going to happen. And what's happening in our moment, what was happening in their church, what's happening in the American church, and probably reading some of your Facebook pages happening in our church, is our allegiances are getting all out of whack. We're prioritizing some things that are, sure, they're important, but they're not nearly as important as the life that God has called us to. They're not nearly as, they're important to us as citizens of of America. They're not so important to us as citizens of the kingdom. Do you long for this? Paul says that when the church can actually set aside those secondary things and unite around the one, he says it's so powerful. And he writes, he says, if you do all of these things without being, he says, without being frightened in any way by your opponent. So you stand firm together, you lock arms, and you're going to be seen as strange by the surrounding community. But then Paul says, and it's a little cryptic, he says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. And to keep it short, all Paul is saying there is when the church stands together in unity, they provide a great witness to the gospel. This makes sense, right? When people see a diverse group of people from different political persuasions and backgrounds who are standing together, even in the midst of differences and disagreements, who aren't it's not a church full of John Waynes and Clint Eastwoods. Like we're just going to be our own, but we're, we're committed to one another. There's so much power in that. It says, you vote that way, I vote this way. It's all right. Mask, no mask. When you can disagree on those things but still have deep love, it demonstrates such power because it, it shows the world that our lives revolve around something bigger than the things of this earth, work or pleasure or politics. It shows the world that we have our eyes fixed on the heavenly kingdom to which we've been called. Man, when we can step into that, that's where the church gets powerful and beautiful. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying the secondary issues don't matter. What I am saying is we have no abiding city here. And we know every city, every country, every empire will one day fall. But we also know that we have a king who cannot die. And he's bringing a kingdom that man did not build and that men cannot destroy. And to be a follower of Christ means we give our ultimate allegiance to him. It's to him we offer our lives as living sacrifices because it's this king that commanded us to love one another even as he has loved us. So closing this thing out, a couple, a question and then some, some applications. The first question, do, do our interactions, question for you, do my interactions, 
especially with those I disagree with, do they make sense in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they fit? The way I talk to people I disagree with or talk about people I disagree with, is it in alignment with the gospel? My prayer for us for the coming months as divisions continue to rage and hairline fractures become bigger fractures, my prayer for us is that those, those fractures would close. And the way they're going to close is by us being a more generous and curious people. It's going to happen as we as, when we as individuals, we interact with those we disagree with in a way that, that is curious and generous, not condemning. It's going into those interactions saying, hey, this person belongs to our family. This person loves Jesus. And this is maybe a hard one. And this person might actually know some things I don't know, and they could expand my thinking. When we learn to live like that, that's when unity will start to prevail. This is hard work. I mean, this vision is beautiful, it's powerful, but it's hard. Who, who among us, anyone here, who among us can say, yeah, I live a life worthy of the gospel? It's so hard, but that's where I want to finish the way I started, reminding you. Our perfect performance doesn't make us worthy. We were made worthy by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And the rest of our lives, we're to spend living up to and living into that vision and that sacrifice. As we come to the Lord's table, it's a great reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. If you have your communion supplies, I want to encourage you to get them out. Communion, the Lord's table, it's filled with so much meaning. But one of the meanings of it is that we belong to the same body. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup, which I will just leave over there for the time being, the cup of his blood. And he said, this is my blood that was poured out for you. And so as believers, when we take part in communion, we're remembering the love that God has shown us and we're remembering that he has made us his people. So I'm going to pray in a minute and I want to encourage you to partake, being reminded of the love and the sacrifice, but also of the call that is represented at this table. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.